Hello and welcome to Office Hours, a podcast about campus politics in the end times. We're your hosts, Laura Martin and David Spataro. Today, we're going to be talking about the recent UC strike with Magali Miranda Alcazar, a doctoral candidate in the Chicanex and Central American Studies Department at UCLA and an activist working at the intersection of gender, race, labor, and technological disruptions. MAGA was a participant in the strike and active in the rank and file movement to push for a no vote against contract ratification. In part two of our interview, we get into more depth on the dynamics of the strike as it unfolded, the importance of non-economic demands such as cops off campus and disability access, the political ideology of the union leadership versus that of rank and file activists, and the impact of the strike on future campus politics. Before we go to our interview, here is a very brief summary of the strike for listeners who might not know. The strike began on November 14, 2022, with 48,000 graduate student workers, postdocs, and researchers. While some postdocs and researchers finalized a deal early on, the graduate student workers remained on strike for five weeks. The strike ended in mid-December with a contentious ratification vote. While the yes vote won by about a 60% majority, a significant minority rejected the contract because it did not fulfill key demands such as COLA, cost of living adjustment, COPS off campus, childcare subsidies, dependent healthcare, waiving non-resident tuition, and disability access. Now let's turn to our interview with MAGA. There's a bunch of directions we could go in, but it seems like we're starting to get into really like the leadership's views on the strike and the kind of ideology that's guiding them. You know, you talked about this idea of peak power and yeah, I think that we want to try to understand, you know, why they took COLA off the table so fast, why they didn't believe in, you know, the possibility of a long haul strike or, you know, or weren't interested in the possibility of a, and I guess by long haul, I mean, like, you know, beyond what, what you had. (laughs) Um, And like, what, what makes, you know, and, and in a way, this is like a bigger question about like, what tends to make union leadership so kind of cautious conservative fearful of rank and file militancy like what made them feel like this is the most we can get we need to wrap this up now um and you know and and we're willing to sacrifice cola even though that's the demand that has energized the the strike from the beginning you know i think that is like the existential question laura and i I think everything you're saying is it could also be a statement like they thought that this was peak power to call off the table. Mm. The union leadership tends to be cautious, fearful of rank and file militancy. Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's not I'm not expecting you to have like the solution to this, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Well, when I when we were talking about when you sent me the questions beforehand, I was thinking about talking about um I have a theory that which is that U- UCLA is the test case for this. So they have this thing called like means testing or structure testing. Um, and I think this comes from Jane McAlevey, but this idea of like um, structure testing, which is again, if starting with this idea that I think there's actually two things happening, I should say one. And I think this is related to like academic 
worker union. So you have on the one hand kind of academic ideas about labor and on the other hand kind of like unionist ideas about labor. And and sometimes these things are going in the same direction and sometimes they're not. So one example of this is that at the beginning UAW was at UC OWSP were had a pretty um friendly relationship with Jane McAlevey and Nelson Lichtenstein and some of these kind of more like UC labor academics, labor academics. Um, and then at times would, would move far to the union bureaucrat kind of side. And then they would get slapped on the wrist by Jane McAlevey and Nelson Lichtenstein and these academics. So one time, the first time that this happened was when um, the postdocs and uh, academic researchers union, which is uh, U UAW 5810, they negotiated, got a bad contract, no COLA, like within week two, by week two. And that was the concessionary business unionism side kind of winning over the academic kind of old guard of the academic labor movement. And so Jane McAlevey and Nelson like the same both kind of like slapped them on the wrist and were like, hey, don't do that. So you're starting to see this kind of bigger break because what the business unionists did was also to implement a tiered program or like allow UC to implement a tiered, two tiered programs. And so you saw them kind of like slapping yeah. the wrist. And at the end of that, at the end of when all was said and done, I think there's a there's a break and some of these people are now looking at rank and file a little bit more. And that's my hope that we can get some of these more like academic um, labor studies people to kind of like break and move in the direction of like, don't fear the rank and file, don't fear black and brown students and mm -hmm. disabilities and blah, 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 like be an ally. Um, but so in the beginning, and I think this was still their um, strat. I'm really interested in this. To me, this is a question of like strategy for like understanding the strategy of the en enemy or whatever. Um, I think they had something called um, that. I think it comes from Jane McAlevey. Maybe it comes from unionism uh, from the business union, the UAW side. I think there, there's times when these overlap. And this is about structure testing. So the way that the picket lines were set up at UCLA was that you had them set up by like clusters of departments. So art and like art was at the very top, right? Like just like the most avant-garde kind of weirdos. And then you had like ethnic studies, which was always going to be right. Like they didn't give a shit about ethnic studies in the first place. And then you had some of the more traditional social sciences and humanities, like English, history, anthro. And then in the middle, you had the other picket line, which was um, the kind of the professional school. So you had information studies, um, education, uh, urban planning, like public policy, those kind of more professional schools, like the kind of middle middle of the rotors and then at the end you had stem so you had the engineering picket and then you had the life sciences like bio chem neuro and i think they set it up in such a way that also was to them in their mind right like a um power mapping of the campus 
And so again, when the picket lines at, in STEM started scabbing right away to them, they were like, okay, well, we've reached peak power because we never really gave a shit about <laughs> the, the, the artists and the ethnic studies people. And so I think for us, one of the things for the rank and file, one of the things was how do we move, how do we move further south? Like, because it was literally like in my mind, like a military strategy. Like, how do we flip um, the ethnic studies to our side? Ethnic studies was were, were one of the first ones to withhold grades to like really get into the long haul strategy. So my department in Chicanx and Central American Studies was the first one to um, agree to withholding grades and was Asian M, um, gender studies, um, et cetera. And we were like, okay, we have this model now. Like, how do we get different departments? So then we went into information studies, education, um, and we're able to kind of flip some of those folks. And so then we had like, okay, now it's not just, now we have like this coalition of, you know, everyone <laughs> versus STEM. <laughs> Although there were like a lot of comrades in STEM too, but it's just like a, a stronghold. Again, kind of like a, it's a very staff core stronghold and and besides that it's also a majoritarian thing because they already get department top-ups so one of the things that they did bargain for was like anti-bullying basically the things that were won were for stem folks so mm -hmm. they have mm -hmm. department top-ups so they all all already made like thirty-three thousand or something when we were all making 24k okay? mm -hmm because of their department top-ups. And so what happened with the tier system is that they codified that into the, the contract. So there's two tiers. One is that kind of, uh, I forget what they call it. They call it cost of living adjustment, which is not. <laughs> so now there's like, we've got cost of living adjustment, which is basically just these like top-ups for like elite mm -hmm. um, departments. And then a separate um, tier, which is an, a prestige tier which is for camp prestige campuses like UCLA and Berkeley are going to be making $2,500 more. So mm -hmm. um, ultimately what happened is that you had the, a critical mass of like ethnic studies are social sciences, humanities, some professional school folks versus STEM. And then they spent a lot of time kind of like organizing stem to be extremely reactionary hmm. and and also right they they actually can go to stem and say hey we did fight for you because the reality is that they're the only ones that they fought for right so we want we i am it's possible that like the answer is similar here but we wanted to also ask about some of the more justice oriented demands so you, the cola was innovative in the sense of making sure that people could continue to live and is a kind of wage demand. But as you mentioned earlier on, there were these unique things having to do with disability justice, um, racial justice and cops off campus. Um, you also have um, <clears throat> the foreign students and the way that they're exploited with a, a large fee. I see some of this in things, you know, around like with Seattle K through 12 teachers putting demands in for like extra recess time for students. So going beyond the traditional bread and butter, um, the leadership dropped this stuff really fast. So it sort of sounds like a similar story to COLA. You know, what was going on? What's your analysis as to why they 
um, drop these. Um, what's the monetary value of some of these? Is it is is this a big reach or would it have just not been a too big of a reach and it was more of an ideological stand? Um, what was going on there? So I should just clarify one uh, point of information, which is that they, I, and I think maybe I misspoke, but they didn't do it all in one fell swoop because I think that would have been strategically really bad. I think it actually became like, bargaining chips and like a divide and conquer strategy because in the very beginning the folks that were kind of sold out first were cops off campus first and foremost never even got um, brought to the table actually when people were doing independent the rank and file were doing independent research they found that on the spreadsheet with the different um, articles that the cops off campus one had been like hidden or something <gasps> so you know already off the bat day day zero they um they kind of threw black and brown students under the bus and that was supposed to be also again based on this like divide and conquer majoritarian sort of strategy like those people are angry we got called bullies we got called you know anti-union we called called all kinds of things um and then the next group to get kind of sold out was the, the next most vulnerable group or, you know, possibly equally vulnerable, but differently vulnerable group, which was the disability justice folks. Their um, disability accommodations article got gutted and it's like actually worse than ADA accommodations, apparently, because wow. um, they have to provide like proof of, uh, of like disability, which is like this whole bureaucratic mess and then they they had an art a separate article about covid protections that also never got um taken up so you can see how it was easy in the beginning to kind of use those as bargaining chips with uc and also alienate people who they never gave a fuck about in the beginning <laughs> mm -hmm. and then i think things got a little bit more complicated when people who were like hey we're not we're gonna hold the line and actually continue to demand these things created this base so then the next thing to go was child care and dependent care and you had a lot of people who were like wait a second I didn't do anything when I was still pro union leadership when they got rid of the you know the first you know that famous quote, first they like, came yeah. for <laughs> tops off campus first they came for, and I said nothing yeah and then they came for child care and dependent care and Thankfully, I think what the union leadership was hoping and expecting was that these like these black and brown students, these like, you know, derogatory thing about people with disability, blah, 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 probably in their minds, right, would just go away. I think what they hoped, I, I kept making it um, an analogy. This is like a really stupid metaphor, but like to the Titanic, like the sinking Titanic, where they were like, oh, shit, the you know, they thought the union leadership really thought that they were gonna just like drive the boat of the Titanic of a 48,000 person strike into the glacier. And that, you know, it was going to be the end of it. It was like just arrogance. And then when the boat started sinking, they were like, okay, well, now we have too much weight on the boat. Who can we kind of get rid of? And they thought that, you know, black and brown students and students with disability were just going to drown when they threw us off the boat. And probably, you know, like Laura said, I think there is this, there is 
this history of black and brown students or, or folks with disability not seeing the union as a vehicle for change. And I think they like were banking on that. Um, mm. There is still some of that, right? People being like, fuck the union, abolish the union, blah, 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 blah. But I think for the most part, there was a base of people who were saying like, no, we're going to hold the line. Um, so that when, you know, dependent care, child care comes up, and then you get um, COLA for kids, which was like the group of people who were organizing around child care, independent care, who kind of, I, I keep saying they thought we were going to drown, but we built like pirate ships out of like mm -hmm. nothing. Uh, I love that. Um, <laughs> And so we'd be like, okay, like join the pirate ship. There's a pirate ship for you. So when the Titanic sinking, the Titanic sinking, all these people are like, shit, what do we do? There's like, okay, join the pirate fleet, you know, kind of build, build this autonomous group. And so when NRST was the last one, I should say mm -hmm. NRST was the last one, the immigrant students, um, they gave them the, they gave them the runaround. Cause by that point they were like, shit, we can't like alienate everyone like we're getting a lot of backlash for the for the the different ways that we've been alienating people so they um ta'd in the tentative agreement they said that they it would be a subject mandatory subject of bargaining the next round of negotiations so they thought like okay nrst will give you uh it, like immigrant students a lot of whom happen to be in stem because a lot of like you know mm. international students or in engineering school or whatever they were like um we gave you something you know like be be grateful but by the end there started there was like an immigrant and undocumented student working group caucus that kind of joined the rank and file mm -hmm. um just to clarify so in that metaphor <laughs> the titanic metaphor the the titanic hitting the iceberg is the moment is that like basically when uc wasn't giving what the leadership thought they would give because they thought okay we'll go on strike for two weeks and we'll get all of these things exactly. uh -huh. and then they kind of panicked and started yeah backtracking uh-huh and started bargaining away and making huge yeah. sessions that were really unpopular with the rank and file yeah. yeah and so you had these i mean talking about the cult the like what it looked like you had like open bargaining right at the beginning before the mediation. And so you had, there was all kinds of undemocratic shit, but so you, they had like zoom rooms with like a max capacity of 500 people. And you had just like 500 people like flooding these being like, no call, no contract, no call. I no saw contract. some of that on social media. It was just little so iconic. Yeah. <laughs> there was one where it was like at midnight, like at the, the last, the second to last one was like, and I think this also like, went a long way to making people wake up to like the shady dealings of the union that they started to meet in open bargaining but at like 12 30 p.m and even at 12 30 p.m there would be like 500 400 people like on the zoom and they would give out the zoom link within like 30 seconds before the caucus 30 seconds before whatever open bargaining and even that and then there'd be like an overflow room on you know someone some rank and file member would make an overflow room and there'd be like 400 people in that overflow room just mm -hmm. all like trolling like no colon mm -hmm. no contract whatever whatever yeah and just just i just want to clarify because i think some of the things that you said are really important like were people then starting to organize and identify with each other as groups left out and who got dropped in the process like oh hey you're the you're a group that just got your demand dropped let's work together was that what was going on 
Yeah. I, again, I think this is where Santa Cruz is really important um, because because the first ones to be left out were Santa Cruz, right? Like they were, uh, they were coming at this from like you know with a history of like two years prior, you know. I don't even know four years prior I'm like I'm losing track of grad school time mm-hmm. and then the pandemic happened yeah so exactly I think Santa Cruz all, already kind of created this base and of cola and then you had cola for all and so I think there's I don't think it's a super cohesive group but I think that people started to identify one another as like rank and file in this kind of abstract way i think the reason i say that it's not cohesive is because it remains to be seen i think there's a lot of sense of betrayal from campuses like um santa cruz and santa barbara there are some of the more expensive campuses there's a sense of like a lack of affinity now with with campuses like berkeley at LA even though I'm really proud of us at LA and at Berkeley because in 2018 I think it was like 197 people voted against the contract and this year was a thousand people or whatever so we were able to like that was a lot of organizing yeah Yeah. to not not only like politicized people who hadn't been politicized but then also break away some of the people who would have been yes voters mm-hmm. um i think that message hasn't necessarily been as strongly communicated but but i do think that the rank and file were like the solidarity group right it was like we the only way we're gonna kind of win any of our demands is by Together. having solidarity with with each other's kind of demands like an injury to one is an injury to all which i think is huge also really transformative something really transformative about the strike because a lot of us i mean i've been an organizer forever but i've never been in a union before and so i also was like someone who my first six years of the union was like okay well whatever my steward tells me to do is what i'm gonna do or whatever mm-hmm. or like you know maybe we'll have conversations about it but like I trust my steward. I love, I still love her, but, but just this kind of sense of like, wait, my, I can theorize and like theory and praxis around some of the things that I believe through the union as like a vehicle in a way that I think a lot of other people who and this is a part of it right that I think some of these people like the reason why cops off campus and disability justice for me is huge I mean a lot of these things but that there's these also these independent social movements that and traditions that people kind of come out of that have animated the way that we do work and this showed in day to day so we had like a cops off campus um teach-in and we were very intentional about like disability accommodations and, you know, p- anyone who kind of joined the pirate ship would always remark that like, wow, we were like really practicing like disability justice, like in the, all the social media posts would have um, alt text. Like that was something really huge. Um, we kept getting zoom bombed by like the alt-right who were saying like really nasty racist anti-black things and we like created like protocols for like safety and security and like care 
Um, mm-hmm. We're talking about like mutual aid. So all these things that it, it felt much more like a kind of inside outside within and against the union mm-hmm. kind of um, vibe that I think also contributed to the sense of solidarity because it's like in my real life, I am, I'm not like a, <laughs> this is ironic that the, I'm not just like a black square on my Instagram feed, like hashtag BLM person. Mm-hmm. Like I have to like really be about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what I was saying is that like there'd be uh, some of the black women that we were organizing with were like saying like, oh, I went back to 2020 to the the same people in the union leadership, the same white men who were like saying that cops off campus was like a uh, like ridiculous demand in 2020 had the little black square and we're like <laughs> mm-hmm. blah, blah, yeah. blah 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 yeah right yeah. um but then just, see the union politics is something separate right like yeah somehow um just on the on the like non economic demands i wanted to just read a quote from your truth out article <laughs> um because i thought that this really captured the idea of sort of like a more expansive vision of what people can demand. Um, And so you wrote, Cola for All rejects economism and the idea that the struggle over wages or even rents is the the only terrain of struggle in which a contract can intervene. The Cola for All tendency uh, seeks to center the voices of the most marginalized workers and imagine a different horizon of worker struggle and all of the ways that the cost of living affects workers with intersectional identities and life experiences. Today, this mantle is being carried by university groups like UC Access Now, a disability justice coalition, and the movement for cops off campus. What is a wage increase when students with disabilities can't access the classroom or when Black students are significantly more likely to be stopped by UCPD? And I thought that was just really, really nicely said and um, just like captured what I was kind of observing from afar just on social media, which really seemed like this much more expansive vision of like, we're not going to accept anything less than something that's really transformative. And from afar, it's really beautiful to see people whenever people have that sense of collective power that makes you feel like, you know what, (laughs) I'm not going to accept scraps. Um, yeah. you know, we, we, we are actually going to keep asking, keep asking and keep demanding more and more, you know, yeah. and rejecting the idea that bargaining, collective bargaining involves leaving some of your friends behind. And I mean, yeah. to me that it's like, no, we don't always win what we want, but we can't bargain by leaving people behind. Exactly. I think that's the key difference. Exactly. That I think that I think going into it, we all expected to demand 54K. I remember saying this the first week. I was like, I'd be happy with, not happy, but I'd be like, I would consider it a win if we got like 35K, 33K. I was like, I just want to be making as much as folks in STEM, right? Because we're so used to Mm -hmm. like poverty wages that I was like, and then as the, as as the union started to normalize, like making these huge concessions without input from like my friends and colleagues and people that I care about, the more I think I started to be radicalized about like, wait, you're a part of the reason why we can't 
demand more. Um, I would have been happy if if the union had done everything in its power and we ended up with 35K, but that's not what happened. What happened was, and then they kept gaslighting and, you know, whatever, this is like a whole other thing, but they kept gaslighting us to be like, um, well, we have, we haven't made any concessions technically because the UC had never come to the table. So they kept saying that like these weren't concessions because concessions would imply that UC was coming to the table. They were just being more realistic about the kind of demands. And I, and for a lot of us, we were like, well, be realistic about our fucking lives, right? And I think that was the other central thing that people gave like testimony. So at these caucus meetings, it was like the, the no colon, no contract. But you also had people giving like really heartfelt speeches about like what it looks like for them to have to live the way they do, right? Like, um stories of folks like trigger warning um but you know uh dying by suicide because of the the conditions like being so just untenable and and just like the trauma and the abuse that we have to go through every day you know folks with disabilities talking about what it looks like on the ground for them to be like I fear fearful for their lives every time they like step foot on campus at their workplace um things like that you know people who um international students um parents just like telling their their real stories that kind of like grounded us in like a you can't make these decisions for us mm -hmm. like it, it ultimately is the it's in the hands of the rank and file and like we I I have a vivid memory when you said that um of a comrade saying ah no I'm like I'm, I'm drawing a blank but what did he say um oh collective bargaining I remember he said this like early on and, and I it stuck with me he was like people need to understand that collective bargaining is collective like it's not just an individual decision of like this is good enough for me mm. um but is it good enough for the collective right and um there was just this kind of sense of if it even if it wasn't articulated like there was a sense of like okay well um the people who are I think that's that's what individualism ultimately won the day um mm -hmm. by a slim margin but the people who voted to end the strike were just like I'm tired um I'm uncomfortable I this is good enough for me um I have I'm independently wealthy I am you know people had the other side also had a chance to give testimonies and they were all like well I'm just happy that my dad isn't gonna be able isn't gonna have to pay my car note anymore <laughs> so, you know stuff like that um and I think even people who voted yes, who might have voted no otherwise, were doing so out of a place of fear that um, this was like the best they were going to get, um, even though there were like, you know, at least 7,000 of their colleagues saying like, no, we can fight more. This wasn't even UC's last best and final offer, I should say. Hmm. So they we could have won more. 100% we could have won more. And the only reason we won what we did was because of people kind of holding the line. Mm -hmm.
And I think for me, the reason why they did this at the union pushed for this ratification when they did was because it was that sweet spot of like, we're lo- we have a base, but we're every day that we're kind of selling people out, we're also losing the faith of mm. more and more people. So if they had dragged it out, out beyond January, it would have been interesting to see, I think, even more movement. We do always like to have something that is so forward looking or outward in scale as sort of our the way we wrap things up. And I think it would be good to go in that direction. Yeah. Like, um, and uh, since this podcast is about higher ed organizing in the end times, it doesn't have to be optimistic. Uh, it doesn't have to be like syrupy, but what do you, yeah. What do you think the, like this means going forward and expanding outward for our industry and our lives? Yeah, I mean, both for the UC and UCLA, but also just, you know, potentially spilling out, I think, as we're already seeing to other, you know, grad students and other um, institutions. Yeah, I think I have both uh, the syrupy and the 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 gloom and doom <laughs> perspective. Um I think like you're saying, Laura, it's absolutely true that we kept, even while we were in the strike, a lot of people kept joking, like, we're doing a great job of raising wages for university students, just not ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, even during the time that we were on strike, MIT, no, sorry, Caltech um, raised their wages to 45K, which was huge. Um, And I kept saying, like, you know, our the reason why they had to, at the end of the day, create this prestige tier for UCLA and Berkeley is their reasoning. The UC's reasoning was that it was to keep up with market forces, Um, which we all here know what that means. It's like, shut up, (laughs) Um, because at the same time, um, Caltech was raising theirs to to try to prevent um unionization there uh, but we're seeing at usc where they did the same thing they raised their their floor to 33k like last year two years ago and and they unionized anyway um and then we were hearing about like even in like some school in china like some universities in china were like raising their really? fear of unionization so i would say like it's it's global um, the other thing is that we're now in a position in a better position to provide that kind of mentorship like like Columbia did for us. I think that was huge. Just Columbia saying, like, don't fear impact. I remember the first couple of weeks. It's scary. You're like, damn, we hopefully we don't like shoot ourselves in the foot by being too ambitious, you know, um, and Columbia just saying, like, don't fear impasse. We are in a we're also just creating what what um, I did want to say this. Uh, uh, my friend Daniel Gutierrez wrote a dissertation about Adu, but he talked about like tactical organizing, like uh, just that kind of like day to day know how and repertoire of tactics mm-hmm. that I think a lot of people learn and, and can kind of um, impart on others going forward. Um, I think, well, we're we have another contract fight now in 2.5 years, which was like the union kept saying that this is a huge win, you know, mm-hmm. 
we're, we can go back on strike in two and a half years as opposed to like four years so a lot of the rationale was like well why the fuck would we trust you <laughs> to lead us in a strike again mm-hmm. um the also the other thing to say is that adu we've talked about adu the academic workers for a democratic union kind of opposition caucus actually i learned came out of a failed no vote for a contract so um a failed no vote we were hoping to win the no vote um Mm-hmm. but even a failed no vote there's like a possible silver lining i think it's going to be really hard because to organize moving forward because people just feel very betrayed and the reactionaries are super emboldened after mm-hmm. the yes vote. they feel like they had a huge victory they feel like they had a huge victory they created like a twitter account like an anonymous twitter account to like harass and dox like um some of the the leaders of the rank and file um and just like saying really really vile nasty shit um so yeah it remains to be seen and then you know there's like also just this broken trust i think between like campuses like santa cruz who are just like again you know like again i think that's kind of pushing them to have more of a individualist mindset not like individuals but just like we have to focus on i think one of the things that they've been doing is like focusing on getting their own campus to give them like um top-ups for how like to mitigate the the awful cost of living so that's gonna be interesting because that's a powerful part of the base that might now moving forward just be like we're not why like you know why do the same thing a third time expecting different results but i think i'm like being at a campus like la and i know i don't speak for berkeley but i can imagine they berkeley and la had very similar um trajectories with like building the rank and file they also i think were able to get like a more than a thousand no votes there so we're in a good position. Someone said this, like, we at UCLA are in a good position to reform our union if we want to go that direction. But it is just really hard given how the union refuses to be malleable, like, is putting up a really, like, fascistic <laughs> authoritarian resistance to rank and file democracy and and just really racist and violent too mm. in a way that just is like kind of nasty so i don't know yeah it needs to be it's, seen. The, it's the tyranny of historic victories i mean you just everywhere you look you hear the summary of the strike as historic victories and i'm sure you all at, the, at a certain point just got sick of hearing that phrase or it's just going to be like you know 100 yeah, yeah it's gross it's gross when when what it means when you think about what it means you know mm-hmm. yeah well thank you so much for all all that you had to share today i feel like we uh if we weren't starting to get tired out we'd probably keep talking for another hour but this was really helpful for me for understanding so much of what was going on um you know the the day by day experience of it and your analysis yeah yeah 
Yeah, I also want to thank you. I mean, I think that we got really detailed in the weeds kind of um, analysis here that I think our podcast is really all about. And, you know, like, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, sometimes it's tactical to not talk so much about internal, you know, disputes and stuff. But as we're assessing how to move forward and how to transform our industry, like this stuff has to be on the table. And I really appreciate you um, bringing your experiences and your analysis. Yeah. Is there, is there anything you want to plug about yourself or any groups at UCLA or anything like that? We can also put links in the show notes. Um, I think it, keep an eye out for, I'm working with labor studies and really trying to personally pull some of these resources from the labor academia uh, in the fight, right? I think that, like I mentioned before, their potential ally and also just deeply imbricated in a lot of histories. But, you know, I think as some, as people who see ourselves kind of in this law, I kept calling it the long haul of life. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the union is one, tool one instrument one vehicle and and i think it's going to be interesting to see uh what other tools avenues vehicles will will use and i'm personally trying to uh create labor studies at ucla like uh, carve out a little space for rank and file organizing mm-hmm. uh so there's a lot of other things but you know we're trying to have like discussions possibly archiving possibly some panels some teach-ins um so keep an eye out for ucla labor studies they also generally just have um good content but that's a space where um it's like a space to watch potentially well we'll do that and if um there's some good stuff we'll we'll you know plug it yeah Thank you, Maga. Anything else? No, just thank you all for this conversation and for letting me nerd out and for nerding out with me because these are all the same questions that I had. I hope um, I'm going to be excited to share this with people. Our theme music is by Nigel Weiss. Our artwork is by Arthur Kay. You can find more of their artwork at rotradio.tumblr.com. We would love it if you subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. And rate and review us on all the major platforms. Thanks for listening. Bye.